this week on Forward. This is a unique chance to actually get a reliable point of view of electoral politics in the United States. And, you know, you, to your credit, you absolutely gave that to me and it's in the book. So, Stephen, if someone were to ask you, hey, what is this book about? What would you say? I would say it's sort of the most accurate depiction possible of the inside of a campaign during the last American election. We were both tracking down some version of the truth and some yeah. version of the not so distant future. And I think other people who read this have also gotten the sense it's like, like that they they come back and say, you know, I find this eminently plausible, um, right. which is what makes it scary, um, but yeah. also hopefully valuable. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, the author of The Next Civil War, and more importantly, my collaborator and co-author on the brand new political thriller, The Last Election, Stephen Marsh. Welcome, Stephen. Andrew, how are you doing? Wow. I don't know about you, Stephen, but I am super pumped that this book is actually arriving yeah. on bookshelves and in people's hands and getting out into the world. Have you gotten any feedback uh, as yet? Well, I got, I mean, the people who read it really liked it. I mean, the Publishers Weekly, like I've, I've never actually had a starred review. I've never had a pre-review for a book go as well as like, like be as nice as that one where it's like, this is a really great working thriller. So I was, I was pretty stoked by that. And yeah, the response I've had has been great. How about you? Yeah, same. People read it. And, uh, you know, what's funny. I don't know if this is an insult to my previous books, but they were like, I'm shocked at how much I like this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it makes sense because it's like, a, it, you know, it's a it's a thriller, like it's a straight thriller. And but it also contains sort of more, you know, intimate information about political life. And I think I think those two in combination are pretty interesting to read. Right. Like, I think those are I think those are those are sort of more fun things to read than than just like, uh, you know, politics. Right. Like and, and it's sort of a, it's sort of a different take on it, I think. And um, it's a very unusual book. Like I looked at it again last night and I was like, we have actually written something that's pretty particular. Like, I don't think there's another example of a book really like this one. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that that's exciting, too. Right. Like that's that, that it's it's strange. Yeah, uh, what multiple people have said to me is they felt like they learned something uh, and they were entertained, which I feel like is mission accomplished for us. Exactly, because, yeah. You know, our, our goal was to entertain, yes, but it was also to convey various messages. Uh, so let's talk about who the heck you are, how you came to this topic, how we ended up writing this book together. So you wrote a book, The Next Civil War, that came out, gosh, now about two years ago, and it, it was provocatively meant to say, look, uh, the United States has very, very clear signs of disintegration that other societies have gone through, and it, it's not exceptional in this regard. Uh, what was the process like researching that book uh, and then putting it out? And this is a work of nonfiction. Um, yeah. And then the response thereafter. Well, in, in some ways, it was similar to our project because it was like there were imagined scenarios of what a, an American breakdown would look like. And then it was deeply researched. Right. So, I mean, what it did was it like the research was like a lot of phone calls with experts. And also, you know, we live in an age of sort of unbelievable modeling uh, from from a lot of different 
viewpoints, agricultural, uh, environmental, political, uh, economic, you know, like there just are these really, really functional models. And I wanted to sort of basically take those models and then put flesh on the bones, right? Like make it, make people understand what, you know, what it means if a hurricane hits New York, which all the models say that it will. Right. And, uh, you know, so that was kind of the process there. Then there was, of course, the journalistic process of like going out and talking to members of the extreme right, which was, you know, because I look like one of them, it was very easy for me to, you know, get access to them. And they were all very polite and nice to talk to with me. And so it was talking to them, going, doing things like going to gun shows in Oklahoma, uh, prepper conventions in Ohio, talking to people of that nature. So it was, it was kind of an all, it was like an all methods that I could think of to do. And I really, you know, what was so interesting to me about our project is that in that book, I didn't really talk about electoral politics, right? Like I didn't really, because like, I felt like the models that I wanted to bring in the next civil war were ones that I felt I could define. Like some are stronger than others, but I could, I could inform the reader of the strength of them, right? So it's like the environmental models are incredibly strong. They just are incredibly predictably strong. The economic models are incredibly weak. I'll give you the best ones. I'll show you how they work. But like they're not they're not effective. But with electoral politics, I really couldn't get reliable information. Like everyone has an agenda. Everyone is hiding something. And that's when that's why when you came along with this idea, I really felt like this is a unique opportunity. Right. Like this is, a, this is a unique chance to actually get a reliable point of view on the state of American uh, of electoral politics in the United States. And, you know, you, to your credit, you absolutely gave that to me and it's in the book. Yeah. So what was your experience like promoting the next civil war, the response there to uh, how, how did that go? Well, I mean, it was a, a year after January 6th. It was very much in the air. Um, you know, it was during uh, the Omicron wave, or was it Delta? I forget which one. But, you know, I was just in front of this laptop doing exactly what I'm doing, like six, seven hours a day, talking to, you know, various, uh, like whoever would have me, which was a lot of, which was a lot of people. Um, and it, like, I, I think I ended up doing over like a hundred podcasts during that, um, during that period, but it was, you know, um, it was very much on people's minds. Uh, that was, you know, and I think going into 2024, of course, it's again, very, very much on people's minds. So Stephen, if someone were to ask you, Hey, what is this book about? What would you say? I would say it's sort of the most accurate depiction possible of the inside of a campaign during the last American election, where, where, where American democracy actually collapses um, under the weight of distrust and under the weight of, you know, a collapsing electoral system. And so it's a, you know, a paranoid political thriller that's accurate. So I approached you and said, hey, how would you like to collaborate on something? Because I had an instinct, and I think you shared that instinct, that we're trying to get a message out. And stories are the most powerful and effective means of actually getting messages out. Um, for better or for worse, now we're all kind of getting pounded into content. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but, but then I thought, well, hey, uh, I, I think we have a compelling story here. Uh, I have an insider's perspective on what the heck it means to run for president and what the mechanics would be of a challenge from outside the two-party system. And there yeah. are various folks who see that coming to pass in 2024, uh, I had a feeling that 
there was going to be something of that sort. So uh, I approached you with the idea saying, look, I th I'd like to present a an account of what would happen if there were fairly strong independent challenger for the White House. Uh, and by the way, I don't think I'm giving anything away here. Like th this candidate, people think it, it's going to be me. It, it's loosely. No. Let's just be clear. It's all a work of fiction. Oh, yeah, yeah. So no, no one's based on anybody. But, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, I mean, but, but people can, if they read, read it, they'd be like, this reminds me of some people. So yeah. um, there's, there's probably a dash of me thrown in there for fun. <laughs> but um but I, I had a sense as to how that might play out and i i thought well we we can convey a really uh true to life uh insidery account of what would happen from the campaign's perspective how close do you you know i, I was interesting because i was thinking about it today reading the new york times like about there was like this piece about the rise in political violence, like the rise in tolerance for political violence and also the uh, the outside party. Like, how, I'm surprised at how close we're getting. Like, I mean, I thought, we, I, you know, when you write these things and you're predicting things like you're almost never right. But I mean, how close do you think we I think we're pretty much on track. What, like what we wrote in the book, we're, we're not that far away. Yeah, I, I'd say we're within like a one to five year zone of much of what we write about yeah. coming to pass. So uh, let's walk through your process a little bit and the writing process a little bit. So you and I then sit down for hours and hours and hours, and I give you a whole slew of stories. I give you projections. Uh, I give you conversations <laughs> and whatnot. Right. And, um, and then you integrated this... A journalist in, in, into the plot. I'd say that the two main characters of the last election, now available uh, for order in bookstores everywhere, um, are uh, Martha, the journalist, uh, and Mikey, the independent campaign manager. Right. Uh, now, I, I certainly would cotton to the fact that um, that I'm, I'm the source of a lot of the campaign stuff, but the journalist stuff came primarily from you and your experience, you are a journalist. I mean, you, you write for The Atlantic and other publications. Uh, so what, what brought Martha to the fore in your mind? Well, I felt like you were giving me the real technical information about a political campaign. And those details are, they're really fascinating to me. Like, I, like and I, they never get written about, like how dark money actually works, like how a like how that how the the video transfer works between uh, these different entities, how you know un what unloading the book means, how scandal management or like how opposition research works, how humanization coaches work, like all this stuff, like very frank and um, a accurate information about a political campaign uh, with you know warts and all, right? And I thought that was like that's the strength. Like that's the like the, that's the that's the major strength of this book. Like it's you know we're writing a political thriller, but that's what's unique about it is that it has that information in it. And to complement that, like what I thought was like only fair was that if you were going to do that, then I would sort of do what a real what real journalistic practice looks like, right? And what the inside workings of like you know, and and this is just like things that I've known from friends, things that I've heard from, you know, being in this business for a long time about how these things work and how large institutions work with all their warts and all, right? With all their uh, various, 
you know, bureaucracies and bureaucratic failures. And, you know, it, also, I think one of the things we really wanted in this book was like to show that neither of these people are bad people. But they ine- like inevitably bad things occur from what they. <laughs> well, you know they're not they're 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 good people. Like you know the journalists that I know are not bad people. Like they ju- they just aren't. And I think the political campaigners aren't really either, right? And so uh, and some, so this, some aren't truly, but a, a yeah, lot of them of are. A lot of them are not. To your point, like a, a lot of them actually got into it to try and do something good. Absolutely. And like, oh, and certainly there are bad guys too, right? Like you know, like this is a thriller. Like we uh, absolutely have that sort of thing. But I just wanted to be accurate. Like, how does the tip line work? Right. Like, it's actually quite an elaborate process um, that determines what stories arrive in a news in a newspaper. Right. And, and in a major, you know, in a major newspaper. And these things are of a technical nature. Right. They're not they're not necessarily like uh, the choices that people make. It's really the structures that they live in. I mean, I think that's what where you and I really were in in total agreement is that. What, what's interesting, what the real crisis that America faces, everyone, it's all personalities and it's all these assaults on people's personalities, but, but, the, and name calling and so on. But the truth is that the problems are structural, right? And the problems yeah. are a, a, of a structural nature and the solutions are going to be structural. And that when you actually just show these systems, which you did and which I did, I did for journalism, you did for political campaign, you see that there, it, it's not, it's just not functional. Right. Like it's not it's not it's not the kind of thing that can work. Right. And so and so that's, um, you know, that's why that, that's that's where Martha came from. Just like a lot of the great female journalists that I've known over my life, over the course of my life, who are totally dedicated. It's basically a religion to them. Um, they are they 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 basically feel that they're in a holy practice when they're practicing journalism and they're in these bureaucracies, which, you know, have their ups and downs and they're trying to navigate through them. And so, you know, she was very easy for me to create. Right. I mean, I've known, I've known women like Martha. You've known people that resemble Martha. (laughs) My whole life, my whole life and admired them. Right. Like they're my friends and like, you know, so uh, she was super easy to create. I am so pumped that the last election is coming out September 12th. The political thriller by yours truly and Stephen Marsh, the author of The Next Civil War, will be in stores everywhere. But you can buy your copy right now at andrewyang.com. Order now and be the first on the block to know how the next election turns out. It has all the twists and turns. Will it be the last election? Let's hope not. AndrewYang.com for the last election. Buy it today. Thank you. Love you all. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your 
internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. On our side, so the, the joke in my circle is that Mikey, the campaign manager, is based on Zach, who was my yeah. campaign manager, but he's a lot hornier. <laughs> I don't know. Did Zach married a girl that he met on on the campaign trail. Didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I, I told a joke about this the other day, Stephen. I was like, it was a very intense environment. We're trying to save the country. Yeah. Well, intense Zach, relationship I mean, formed. Zach was Zach told me the truth about how things worked and it was it was incredible. I mean like it was I mean for me it was just like it was like oh wow like every every 15 minutes there was some astonishing fact that you know I've followed American politics my whole life but it's like really basic things about how things work I mean just we're, it's amazing that they're not known. You know that they're not like part like that this process is so uh you know opaque that it that it that it's uh that these basic facts of how these uh, management is done are are you know are unknown so i'm i'm going to say something that the the book doesn't get into as much uh, the book gets into a lot of things but uh, one of the things that people don't really appreciate is how uh the two parties are functioning quite differently in this regard so the the democratic party 69% of dems have a high trust in the media and so that they, they take their voting cues from the media. Uh, if you look at the Republican voters, it's down to 15 percent, um, right. which means that if you run as a Republican, you pretty much have to be in opposition to most media. Uh, you can see that with Trump and the fake news and DeSantis with the fake news. And <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, it's, um, you know, at best, you're supposed to have a somewhat adversarial relationship. Uh, and I was in many ways uh, an outsider, and I considered myself a relatively positive outsider, but in the Democratic Party, there are a lot of safeguards uh, to keep someone like me from winning. In the Republican Party, those safeguards are much, much weaker to the point where Trump just ran over them in 2016. He may be poised to run over them again uh, in 24. Uh, and so you, you see uh, this growing energy and frustration. I will say that most people... Uh, are surprised by the way our story goes, like our, our plot goes. Um, right. and, and one of the, the things that you and I said was like, we want everything to be as accurate and true to life as possible. Uh, like yep. yeah, this, this isn't going to be some kind of fantasy fulfillment. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, obviously we're not writing a story with a happy ending, right? Like this is not uh, Louise Penny and Hillary Clinton. Right. Like, I mean, not to be critical of either of them, because I think that book is excellent, but like, that's not what we're doing. 
which is like a fantasy of American political life. Like this is the opposite of that. This is like this is how this it is. This is the reality of American political yeah. life. This is like, hey, yeah. how how does this stuff actually shake out? And yeah. then uh, and what are actors' uh, actions and motivations on the inside? Yeah, I mean, I I think that was that was really crucial to the whole process. And I mean, um, I like I I think in all honesty, I think that took a lot of courage on your part. Like on my part, it really didn't. But like, I think for you to actually reveal like how this stuff works, I mean, you know, I guess I betrayed a little bit about the, about the media community, but uh, but but you know, no one likes them anyway, right? Or, or, so, I, yeah, I, I didn't. I mean, I found the the details very interesting of what, what's going on, but it isn't, um, you know, in a way, it's not news to to many folks right. that that. that is the way it's going on. So what was the most enjoyable part of writing this book for you? And then what was one of the less enjoyable parts? Well, I think the most, the most enjoyable part for sure was talking to your people. Right. I mean, that was just like, I mean, that was just a crash course education in American political life that, I mean, who has, who has that? Like, I mean, that was just a, that was just an unbelievable gift to, uh, to, and just, uh, just simply on a level of human curiosity uh, to understand how these mechanics work. I mean, I feel that that I, I feel like no one, no one other than me has ever gotten something like that. You, you know, access journalists work for 20 years to get in to get information that I got the first day because our agreement was I want the truth. And then you can you can cut whatever you want, like and then we'll work out what happens later. Like that meant that I really got the truth. I mean, and you, and you ended up basically cutting nothing of the truth. I, I mean, very, very little, um, you know, like that was, so that was to me was just an unbelievable, uh, unique gift. The hard part I would say, well, like, I, I mean, I think we, we had to write it fast, right? Like, like it's one of those things where it's like, like it's it certainly timely. was hard. Work. It, it's timely. Like it, you know, it needs to be out. It needs to, like, it needs to be, uh, like if we didn't publish it this fall, it would be too late. Right. And so, and, and so we needed to, we needed to uh, go very, very hard. And so there were, it was like, I mean, you know, quite a grind over like a period of three or four months to get, you know, just to get the writing done, right. In some kind of coherent way that we could then work with. Um, but, you know, it was, I mean, like it was, uh, on the other hand, it was not, it was certainly never a painful process for me. I mean, I like writing and I certainly liked learning what it, what I learned. So it was, you know, like it was, it was, um, it was surprisingly painless. I mean, I've never really collaborated with anyone before, so I, I, I don't know, maybe I should do it more often because I, I really, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, I, I enjoyed it too. And getting your pages was a blast for me. You would send me a whole chunk of, of pages or in some cases chapters. I'd be like, Ooh, what happens next? Uh, even though I have a sense obviously of where the plot was going to go. Uh, and, um, reading through your, in some cases, recreation of scenes that I'd lived was really fun and fascinating. There were some differences, uh, and I, I got to see the choices you made in terms of what you changed and what you kept and what you turned scenes into, who you turned characters into. A lot of the characters are composites of yeah. real people, which I suppose is, is very much the norm. Uh, and there was a point somewhere in the middle of the book that it felt like a world had been created uh, where you no know, when, when you're watching a TV series or, or a movie, uh, the successful ones at some point make you think that, okay, that this, 
uh, feels like a version of the world or another uh, reality or track, um, that, that the, the book achieves that somewhere in the middle. And I remember having that feeling when I was reading the chapters you sent over and feeling a thrill. Where I was like, wow, uh, we're, we're doing it. I mean, you do live in a world, right? Like the 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 relationship between you and Zach, and between I mean, it's all it, like it, it is this kind of nexus of meanings, right? That 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 that, and I wanted to I wanted to capture that. I also thought the thing that I really liked was even though it's like um, you know, obviously it's a dark book. It's a you know a paranoid political thriller, but true. there's some there's some humor in it. There's some humor, there, but, it but is, also it's pretty like, much like real life. There's some humor in real life, and it's kind of dark. <laughs> but then, but then, whenever whatever you told me that was optimistic, I believed. Right, like you know, like it was like I, I'm trying to get a portrait of like the volunteers and things like that. And and Zach and you were both like, oh, those are great people. They're just there for their country. They're like they work. They they do this work for free, and it's and and out of love for their country, and like. That, I mean, that was another part that because I because I was given access to like the darkness, like frank descriptions of dark money, frank descriptions of all this stuff. When it was when the op, the optimism and the and the patriotism, the genuine, I, I believed it, right? And I could write it like I believed it, right? Like I could write it like this is th- these people are not lying. These people are they they mean this, right? And I think that was that was kind of if there's any hope in it, it's that. Right. That yeah, the, there, there, there's lots of actual patriotism out there. Right. And lots of genuine desire to make the world a better place, like tons of it. That's that's not a lie to say that. Yeah. I, I often say that uh, Americans are being let down by our institutions. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. and, you know, like the, the people are better in the institutions. Uh, you know, at this point, if you just align up a bunch of random Americans, they could do a whole lot more. <laughs> yeah. Well, the institutions are really terrible. Right. I mean, they are in. Repol, and I mean, like, well, I mean, that was the point of the next civil war, right? Which was like, if you look at these, these are not really sustainable processes that are going on. But yeah, it's not the people. It's not. I mean, it, it, like, the people are, you know, I mean, you know, I live in Canada, so a completely different political system that a pretty functioning political system. The people aren't better, right? Like, it's not like that's not that's not that's not how it. I know that for a fact. Right. It's just the system works, uh, you know, a little better, although hopefully for a little long, it might it might just be a case of holding on a little longer. But, um, yeah, I mean, I found that like because I was getting I felt like I was getting the real information, what was genuine and and beautiful was also I could I could write in a really honest way, which I which I love. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors. 
of sleep medicine is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. What is your favorite scene in the book? Because I want people to have a glimpse as to what happens in the book. I'll tell you mine. Yeah, um, tell me yours. Uh, my favorite scene in the book was the rally. Uh, maybe because it reminded me of some of our real-life rallies. Uh, but th- this was a rally in Target Center in Minnesota. And uh, there, there are all of these things going on behind the scenes, but also in front of the camera. Uh, you wrote a version of a rally speech that I quite enjoyed. Um, it, it it felt um, like a version of something that I might have said. Right. <laughs> so so that that was my favorite scene. Maybe in part because it brought me back. Uh, you know, it made me yeah. uh, feel a certain way, but it also felt very very real. Um, what was your favorite scene? Well, I mean, the thing I I. I... I mean, I like that scene, too, because, you know, I got so many details from so many different parts of your campaign. Like I got like, you know, the signs have to be double sided. Like if the signs are only one side, then when the when the picture comes in, it's like it doesn't work. Right. Like you don't see that. So like little details like that are just fascinating to me, like how the technical works. I mean, obviously, I liked writing the bad guy. Right. I like like those are those are like the funnest things to write, like Balfour and like, you know, like where he goes and visits the tech overlord and his elaborate, you know, layer, basically. Like, I, I mean, like those and figuring out like how opposition works, how opposition research works and like how um, and, and the methods they use. I mean. It, it's it's a cliche, but it's always funner to write the monsters than to write the good guys, right? And um, I did I did like that. I mean, I also liked writing, like the I would say the 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 real details of the like you know how how you go over maps. I, I mean, like the details of like of the the deep strategy, which I which I found like re- I just find really fascinating. Like it's like how how deep this like how you're thinking through like states and things like this and and knowing the different uh, electoral college situations in each one and how complicated it is and how uh, and how there's this huge amount of, you know, basic knowledge of the of, of these systems that are elaborate, to say the least, um, you know, like I, I really enjoyed writing those parts, too. Just because I, I don't think that that's really understood, like in in horse race politics, even though it's the key to it all, right? Even though it's like absolutely how it how it runs, you you understand exactly where the two parties hate each other, but where they also are in cahoots, right? Like where they they also like shore up their influence together as a way of like excluding and they hate each other, but they sure hate anyone other than them more. Right. And that that just is a very interesting way to approach the whole electoral system. Stephen, the last time you were on the podcast, we were talking about AI, which you've done a, to- a ton of writing and research in. A lot has happened in AI since then. Uh, what is the latest and what is your concern level? And as one example, right now, the writers and actors are on strike in part because studios want to use AI to produce content uh, more cheaply and efficiently. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, 
I'm not worried. As you know, from having worked with me about this thing, it's not like I'm the most optimistic person in the world, right? Like we just wrote a book called The Last Election together. But like, I don't, I don't think that AI is a threat to anything. I mean, what, what I honestly believe is that the, the anxieties about AI, in like never mind the, the monster, like the AI is going to eat the world. Like those fantasies are, uh, you know, simply a distraction from the real monstrosities of the algorithms that social media has already got us in. Right. Like, they, like there, there are way more dangerous things out there than AI. And, you know, as someone who, you know, I've collaborated with two things this year, one is you and the other is AI to write a novel. You are a much better collaborator. Uh, like the, 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 the idea that AI is going to replace writers is ludicrous. Like it is going to replace some boilerplate writers, but it's not going to replace anyone in Hollywood. Um, it, it's not going to lower anyone's value. Um, it, it's just not that kind of system. It can't do what a screenwriter does. And, you know, so I think that, you know, the, you know, while there are obviously real concerns uh, about a lot of things, they're mostly concerns in other fields like they're mostly concerns about what it might do when it's plugged into social media or what it might do when it's you know when it's plugged into the justice system which it should never be um but you know in itself like generative ai is i don't think it's a threat to anyone it's certainly not a threat to writers you know i of that i as someone who wrote a novel using it and is doing a lot of ai projects that i'm obsessed with creatively um like i don't think it's a threat to anyone I guess I should ask, like, we, we talked a bit about, like, how you felt writing the book. Like, I wonder if you feel like how accurate you feel we were in the end. Like, do you think, like, I, I mean, I think we're pretty, I'm pretty amazed at how close we're getting to 2024. Like, as you know, I didn't really want to give it a date because I don't like to pick, like, I, I don't like the future. But, like, it just seemed to me like, actually, it, it could be 2024. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm also a little surprised by how on the nose we are. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and and there so there's a lot of discussion about this no labels unity ticket. Uh, it's right. been in the news everywhere. Joe Manchin apparently is telling people that he's going to run for president. By the way, so if if you have uh, Joe Manchin and let's say Larry Hogan unity ticket, uh, one of the very angry commentaries is, look, this is going to throw the election to Trump. Um, and I talked to pollsters who are on the inside, and they said, yep, that's what it does. So, you know, we have a different version of, of that candidate and campaign. Um, the other major third-party candidate is Cornell West, who, uh, who's polling at 5 or 6% in polls I've seen. I think that's real. Uh, I think the vast majority of that comes from the Democrats. Uh, and uh, I think that's going to be more than the margin of victory in a bunch of the swing states that are close. Um, so those two things seem very, very real. Cornell West, in many ways, is more real because he's a declared candidate. He's running as a green. They have ballot access in most states. That's right. happening. The no labels thing is still somewhat speculative. Right. They, they only have ballot access in a small handful of states. They don't have a declared candidate. Um, don't know how real it is. But Cornell West is real, and Cornell West does not strike me as someone who is running so he can bargain down the stretch. No, um, I, don't, I don't think he gives a shit on that. You know, it's like he would not care about some soft core White House appointment to you know whatever. Yeah, to be the, 
the the new official pontificator of uh, of whatever the heck like that that's not Cornell's agenda. Um, so I, I think Cornell is a hundred percent real, um, and No Labels is probably seventy percent real. Are you thinking that Trump is just a presumptive Republican candidate at this point? I mean, that's how, I mean, you know, from the outside, that's certainly how it looks to me, which seems to me really dangerous in a whole other series of ways. Uh, yeah, I think Trump's the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party. Uh, there, there was a minute when people thought it was going to be DeSantis until he actually arrived. <laughs> so, so, so one of the things right. that I don't, I, I tried to convey, um, we tried to convey in this book, I hope it comes across to people. So the, the, one of the fascinating elements of what's happening now is that you have these machines uh, coming into gear and and trying to uh, destroy each other or win or whatever it is, um, but you fundamentally can't change the human being at the top of these machines. Uh, you can't make Ron DeSantis someone other than Ron DeSantis, and then you you stick Ron DeSantis out there, and he's actual Ron DeSantis, and people are like, I don't want this guy. <laughs> so people are like looking around, being like, Well, well, that's not going to work. Let's find another person that we we can actually uh, make this work around. It's Trump, unless everything were to break right and coalesce around another candidate, I'm going to make a short list of the candidates I think have the highest ceiling. Yeah, tell me. Potentially rival Trump. I don't think it's DeSantis. I don't see that coming back. Uh, I, I think Tim Scott has a very high ceiling. Interesting. Um, I don't think it's Nikki Haley. I don't think it's Pence. Um, the other two who I think have very high ceilings uh, are. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who has a genuine really? following and genuine appeal and also can self-fund as a bridge to various levels. Uh, I think you know, that there are a lot of people who are looking around DeSantis who uh, Vivek is their second choice. Um, and I, when I say that, I mean among real voters, among actual Republican primary voters. Right. There are a lot of Republican primary voters who would be perfectly happy with Vivek. Uh, so so that that is right now, I'd say, the dark horse. It's going to be turmoil. Isn't it? The other outside possibility as someone who's going to outperform relative to what most people think is Doug Burgum, uh, in part because Doug Burgum um, is a self-funder. He's even richer than Vivek. I mean, Vivek's net worth is estimated at $600 million, which is enough where he could, if he got serious, bankroll himself into tens of millions um, without feeling the, the pain too much. Uh, Doug Burgum is worth low billions, um, which means he could self-fund into the, the tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, right. which could be a very useful bridge. Uh, Doug Burgum just made the the first debates. Most people still have no clue who he is. So uh, if if he can supplement uh, his native resources with some genuine popular appeal, yeah. uh, he could he has more upside. So the the problem for a lot of these customary political figures like Pence or Haley or whomever, and I feel their pain in a way, is they're spending, in my opinion, probably the majority of their time fundraising. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're just like the average member of Congress, where um, where someone like Nikki Haley or Mike Pence or Chris Christie or a lot of these other folks, they'll show up in an early state and they'll do a thing, and then they'll disappear to a money center the next day. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll disappear to the Hamptons, Palm Beach, um, California, Texas, uh, and just freaking grind and pass the hat. Uh, and they need to to keep their campaign alive because every 90 days a new report comes out saying, no, Chris Christie raised 1.7 million, Nikki Haley raised, uh, you know, whatever it was, uh, let's call it uh, 7 million. Um, and if that number starts to lag or fall off the track, then everyone says, whoops, like, I guess they're not viable. 
Um, whereas Vivek and Doug can get away with it um, to a higher degree and just be like, I just plugged 25 million in. So, you know, campaign's fine. I remember the first time, one of the first times we talked about the book, you like, I was like, okay, let's do like, what are the most important days in a campaign? Like what, like what are the days that matter? And you were like, first quarterly fundraising report, second quarterly fundraising report, third quarter. That's when I knew we actually had something right. Cause it's like, that's such an unromantic answer. Like, you know, that's such a like, that's such a like, in a sense, a cold blooded answer, but of course it's true. Right. And like, and, and that was what, that, like, we were able to focus on, on that, like on that reality of that sort of stuff and the date and also the daily grind of like how, how to, how to fundraise, which, you know, is the current American political practice. Like I, I just found all that stuff just um, like both chilling, but, but fascinating too. Right. Cause this is, this is how it actually works. I mean, do you think that that's, I mean, is that the core of the problem? Or is that just like one of the many problems? Well, so one one of the things I can't I can't give give things away too much, but um, there's a sense that uh, it's billionaires running a lot. Yeah, you know, you look at someone like J.B. Pritzker, who's the Democratic governor of Illinois, billionaire. Uh, you know, one reason why he's mentioned uh, in, in these lights, uh, and you have these machines that are getting more and more powerful and more expensive. And then if you have like an ordinary human, uh, even if they're the governor of whatever the heck, like uh, run, they're like, oh shit, like I need millions and millions of dollars to feed my machine. Right. Uh, and so the average American's looking up saying like, ah, oh, this is terrible. Like what the heck is going on? Um, and so who can override the machine? Uh, you know, oftentimes it takes a billionaire. And then right. the media is complicit in this because... The media is like, oh, shit, we have to pay attention to this guy because he's a billionaire because he can do it. You know what right. I mean? Like if, if you had like another random person be like, oh, we can ignore this this fool. But then if if, if, <laughs> if the person shows up with a billion dollars, you're like, oh, I guess we got to pay attention. Um, and, and so that like the, the billionaire path is one of the only ways out. And, and, and then people hate that because it's like, well, that's super fucked up that you need a billionaire. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not a good system when only billionaires can be in power. Like that's not, like, that's not the, that's not the American idea. You know what I mean? Like, uh, or the Democrat, I, you know, the thing I also find really fascinating when you explained it to me was how the money, the money matters in itself. But especially in the early days, it's almost symbolic what it means. Like it means a certain kind of it, it, it's like if Nikki Haley raises, you know, one, you know, 17 million or something like this, that 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 money is actually not particularly significant in itself so much as it is a demonstration that she can raise it. Right. Yes. Like that, that, it, that she has that kind of investment. And I thought that was really interesting, too. Yeah. The, the rule of thumb is that 80 percent of the campaign's money will get spent in the final um, several weeks. Right. So, so if you're competent, you're not spending the money, but people have to be able to see that you will have the money and can get the money. And then if you can't, then you're like, well, you're doomed. Um, so there, so there, there has to be that, uh, constant arms race, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and the, the press will turn on you in a, an instant if your fundraising falls below a certain level. Now, there, there were times in the not-so-distant past where people have overcome that dynamic. Uh, John McCain had some terrible fundraising numbers uh, the cycle he went on to win the nomination. like There, there were candidates who were left for dead and then came back. Right. Um, but I think things might have changed even since 2008 or whatever the cycle. Right. Um, 
because uh, because the sums have gotten larger, because the you know the dynamics of the press have changed. Um, frankly, because what what people are saying with their votes has become less important. Um, right. you, you you know you you saw too. I mean, right now they're talking about Iowa, and it used to be that Iowa was somewhat um, indicative or determinative, or at least a combination of Iowa and New Hampshire were uh, right. de were determinative. Uh, and look at this past cycle as an illustration, but it's been happening more and more. Like Biden did terribly in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then went on to win the nomination. So you're you're so you're seeing that there are um, like the machines are getting stronger relative to the people. I talked a little bit about like what it was like to work with a politician, which is totally, you know, I totally unprecedented for me or really anyone that I've known. But I wondered, what did you think like working with a journalist? Like, did you feel, did you ever feel weird about it? Oh, you know, I enjoyed uh, collaborating, man. We should do it right. again. If this book does well, hey guys, yeah. everyone go out and buy the last election because <laughs> then we can write the last election too, which is oxymoronic but whatever or turn it into a television show <laughs> really the last election oh no um, well, next one we'll do is the first election of the second republic right that's what we'll do right? uh, yeah maybe maybe yeah uh, that, that's a good point and a utopian book a, a hop, an optimistic book well um I, I found the process of working with you to be really positive um because uh you would interview me and zach and other people and you had your own research uh from your your uh, previous work, uh, and then you would produce pages, and I would just come around and say, um, yes, yes, no, yep. tweak, no, like that wouldn't happen that way, that right. person wouldn't talk like that necessarily, uh, blah, 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 um, and, and then, and you and I seem to just be in search of the closest thing to the truth as possible, and so you would look at it and say, well, you know, like if, if that's the way it would go down, then, then that, like let, let's write that. There was never any like, no, I really love. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely not. Well, it's also things like, you know, at one point I'm doing the book and you're like, you don't have a security guy in here. Like there, need, they, they, there needs to be a, they, they, they needs to, it's like a security guy is a huge part of this whole process. I'm like, right. I mean, it just never even, it just never even occurred to me. Right. Like there, there's just a huge amount like that. Right. Where yeah, it's yeah. Like, so we were both tracking down some version of the truth and some yeah. version of the not so distant future. Yeah. Uh, and, and and that's what what excited me is that, that there was a sense, and I think other people who read this have also gotten the sense is like, like that they they come back and say, you know, I find this eminently plausible, um, right. which is what makes it scary, uh, but yeah. also hopefully valuable. Yeah, that's the idea. That, I mean, that's what. Yeah, and entertaining. I hope. You know, like and entertaining. You know, but Publishers Weekly thought it was really entertaining. I mean, that was what I, I, I was, you know, I, I assumed we get the uh, the credit from like it being truth telling. Like I because I, I, we worked hard at that. You know, like I thought we I, like I thought we got that. But like the entertaining thing like is a little trickier. And, you know, and, and, I, and I think we've got that, too, which is which is nice, you know, which is like a, a, it's a it's a good bonus. Yeah, it is entertaining. Um, uh, multiple people have said to me it reads like a movie or a TV show, uh, and there are folks uh, in Hollywood who are looking at potentially turning it into a movie or a TV show. Um, so uh, this could be coming to screens near people. Hopefully people will run out and buy the book and enjoy it, um, yeah. and then X months later, if it shows up on your TV screen, you can be like, oh, and you can be in the know and say, oh, that, that happened. But uh, I, I will say... I'd be excited about that because the the story does 
uh, read like a thriller. And, and that's a credit to you, Stephen. It is. I mean, it's just a straight thriller, right? I mean, I, I felt like we were, I, I was really trying to imitate those great thrillers of the 60s. Like, you know, like, like, like the um, Seven Days in May, uh, Manchurian Candidate. Um, th- th- those are, those are just great great books you know and like the political thriller as it's come to exist is a little different than those like they tend to be a lot longer and a lot more um you know with a lot more state stages and also more lengthily written like the more more voluminously written but i wanted to be concise you know also like i, I feel like those sense of relentlessness like that's like part of the times we live in right this feeling of like this relentless march of time like things speeding up rapidly and, uh, you know, those old books really had that way of building that right into the structure of the story. And um, and it, like that. And I, I wanted to get that, too, because it seems to fit. Right. It fits the moment. It fits the story. It fits, you know, where we are at. Well, I'll certainly give you credit for a lot of the, the structuring. Um, so if people love this book, then they should thank me. If they yes. don't like this book, they should definitely blame Stephen. Stephen That's fine with me. Up my my genius uh genius experiences so for people who want to buy the last election you can buy it at bookstores anywhere uh there's an audio version if you buy it through the publisher then you'll be supporting an independent publisher and that's dynamite uh because me and steven decided to team up with an indie um this felt like uh, um, a more appropriate uh, publisher than a big corporate one, given that, you know, in some ways we're talking about <laughs> kind of like in, independent politics and, and, and whatnot. It, it seems strange to, to then turn to um, the, the big labels. Stephen, it's been such a pleasure collaborating with you on this. You and I are going to go on tour together to various cities. And if the response is what we hope to be, maybe this will just be the first of many collaborations. From your mouth to God's ear, always great to talk to you, Andrew. Last election, check it out. Be in the know. Know what the heck is going to happen and maybe how we can change it because that, I I will say, is what motivates me and and I dare say Stephen too. For sure. 